Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 265, Michael Underwood's Shield and Crocus. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. I'm your host, Timothy C. Ward, author of the Sand fanfic novelette Scavenger. We have an awesome interview today with Michael Underwood. He's going to give away an audiobook, an ebook, and a signed personalized paperback of his newest new weird superhero fantasy novel, Shield and Crocus, from 47 North. To enter, go to our post and comment about how you would make one of your favorite fantasy heroes a superhero. The contest will go for one week from today. Today's episode is sponsored by the Whispers from the Abyss Kickstarter project from Zero One Publishing. This H.P. Lovecraft-inspired anthology of short stories is already available on Kindle, but they are running a program to make it a print book. If you go to whispersfromtheabyss.com, you can find out more information or search on Kickstarter. I appreciate the week off last week. It was the 4th of July, and... um, I was really trying to get my book done, so I succeeded in that. Finished another editing pass. Hugh Howey wrote a blog post about his editor at Simon & Schuster, Karen Marcus. She's actually the senior editor there, and she is doing some freelance work in August. You can email her, karenmarcus at gmail.com, and see maybe you guys can work together. I'm looking into uh, the first part of my novel, Uh, edits, and uh, unfortunately I can't afford a full novel edit at this point, but I don't think I'm going to self-publish, so I think it makes sense for me to invest a little bit more on the intro, and uh, hope I do well in submissions. If you think about books and series, if the first 25 pages don't really hook you, books 2 and 3 and 4 aren't going to matter, so that's kind of my theory there. Some good news for the show. Sean Farrell told me that he recorded an interview with Greg Van Eekout, so that will be dropping soon. Brent just sent me an email saying he's got an episode coming up soon. Uh, Moses, of course, wants to get more involved, and uh, hopefully Michael J. Sullivan will have some stuff for us soon as well. I expect it to be very packed in the next couple months. In relation to that, I've been thinking about our sponsorship program. It does help to make the time that I and our team put into this show, uh, if we can get some sponsors. And I was thinking, how about I offer a half-off deal on sponsorships for an intro promo in the show? Um, Our normal sponsors get 30 to 40 seconds promo in the middle of the episode and a mention at the end and beginning. What if I do one for half that cost and just do like a 15-second... promo at the beginning. Uh, you can email the show, publishing at gmail.com if you're interested in uh, details on that. And one last thing, if you are listening to this today, Monday, July 7th, uh, Pennsylvania Omnibus is on sale for 99 cents on Kindle. If you remember, Michael Bunker was on the show earlier discussing Amish sci-fi. Well, today is his big sale day, so maybe go check that out. Okay, folks, enjoy this episode with Michael Underwood. How are you, Michael? Doing all right. It's been, uh, it's been a roller coaster of a month. <laughs> well, 
Yes. I mean, it seems like I hear about you turning in a book every other week, so I imagine it would be. (laughs) (laughs) Not quite to that point. I'm, uh, I'm, I'll be good if I'm, if I write two books this year and then maybe I can try and build on that, but it's a tall order to begin with. Well, okay. So you got Shield and Crocus Mm -hmm. and then what's your other book plan for this year? So I've got Younger Gods is coming out and then I may write a book that's currently on submission. If it sells, I'll write it right away. If it doesn't, I'll have to decide whether I want to go ahead and write it to try and sell it whole or whether another project should come first. Younger Gods, is who's going to be publishing that? That's uh, Simon & Schuster, same imprint as Geekomancy. Okay. So we brought you on the line today to discuss Shield and Crocus, which is released from 47 North. Congrats on your release for that. Thank you, yeah. Uh, I was wondering, do you have the the back cover copy that I'm looking at on the Tor.com excerpt? I don't have it right in front of me, but I'll do a fun thing that I haven't been able to do previously. I'll go grab a book. And I'm back. Yes, your uh, Geekomancy books were all ebook only deals. So, congrats on your first uh, print book deal. That's awesome. Yes, I made a big tower of them when they arrived, and then I put uh, a Jaeger and a dinosaur on top of them to fight. It was pretty awesome. <laughs> well, um, let's see. This is the next podcast in our queue, and it will be out before July 2nd. Uh, do you want to just tell people real quick what your contest is for that? or that ends on July 2nd? Sure. So what I'd like to do is give away a copy of Shield and Crocus in trade paperback, a CD audiobook version that can be converted to MP3 audio, and a ebook copy. So that way people can read across all three formats. The audiobook is narrated by the amazing Luke Daniels, who does the Iron Druid books and lots of other audio. So he's a top-notch uh, talent in the field. And this way, folks can read in whatever format they want. Awesome. So what do they have to do to win or to enter? What should they do? Is it... uh, I've got it right here on my website, but it's naming your favorite superhero and setting them in a fantasy world, I believe. Yeah, I'm doing that on my blog. Um, I'm happy to repeat it, or we can do um, a contest where folks take their fantasy, their favorite fantasy hero and rewrite their kind of persona into being a superhero. So what would Kelsier be as a superhero? You know, give their name and a little bit of the mythology around the hero. So take a fantasy character and turn them into a superhero. Okay, wow. So you'll offer that for this show? Yeah, so I'll have uh, the, the one contest that I'm doing is going to end early next week and then when this goes up we can start a new one okay cool so do you have the uh the back cover copy this i mean this description of your story blew me away so i'm really excited for you to share that with folks in a city built among the bones of a fallen giant a small group of heroes looks to reclaim their home from the five criminal tyrants who control it the city of Audek hall sits among the bones of a titan for decades it has suffered under the dominance of five tyrants all with their own agendas. Their infighting is nothing, though, compared to the mysterious spark storms that alternate between raising the land and bestowing citizens with wild, unpredictable abilities. It was one of these storms that gave First Sentinel 
leader of the revolutionaries, known as the Shields of Adekal, power to control the emotional connections between people, a power that cost him the love of his life. Now, with nothing less to, left to lose, First Sentinel and the Shields are the only resistance against the city's overlords as they strive to free themselves from the clutches of evil. The only thing they have going for them is that the crime lords are fighting each other as well. That is, until the tyrants agree to a summit that will permanently divide the city and cement their rule of how to call. It's one thing to take a stand against oppression, but with the odds stacked up against the shields, it's another thing to actually triumph. <laughs> oh man, that's that's so cool. Uh, let's see. So I asked for some questions on Facebook and... I'm not even going to try and outdo Dave Robinson. Uh, Dave Robinson's question. Uh, Dave is the host of the Roundtable podcast uh, and one of my favorite narrators. If you guys ever hear his stuff, he's incredible. Okay, so here's his question: A city built in the bones of a titan is jaw-droppingly awesome. I agree. <laughs> was that a case of I so want to write a story set in a city built in the bones of a titan and if so why or did the idea evolve as the story developed and if so how so the the bones giving shape to the city came about when I decided that I wanted to write a story that was going to be new weird as a setting and then kind of have superhero plot and character elements so I dug through the new weird stories that I'd read Etched City by K.J. Bishop, the Ambergris books by Jeff Vandermeer, the Basslag books by China Mieville, uh, the Four Worlds by Steph Swainston. And I said, okay, what's a really cool, big city-defining element that I can, that I can do? Because I wanted a city to have uh, the character unto itself. And I think I previously had an idea that just went in, into a notebook that said, literal bo body politic, a city in the shape of a body. So I went back and I grabbed that idea that I, I think I came up with at 6.15 in the morning when I was flying to a convention somewhere years and years ago. So it just went into the you know, big, big notebook of ideas. So I went back, grabbed that and said, well, where does, this, where does the shape come from? Why is it this, the shape of a, of a person? So I said, well, what if in the first stage during the, this world's version of the Titanomachy, where the Titans fight the gods or different gods are fighting to control the world, what if one of them falls from heaven and shatters the earth and leaves a chalk outline? So you have the shape of a broken body of the Titan Audek, who fought, lost, and then died upon the earth, and only his bones remain by the time we get to the story. So there's an incredible sense of history in the city of Audek Hall, that it dates back millennia, and that the people who live there can see themselves as part of the whole world's history. And that sense of continuity gave me a good grounding that I could build then on with the Republic that the heroes are trying to kind of restore, and then the 50 years of control by the tyrants. So there are several stages, layers of history. So it doesn't seem like it's just a flat, uh, contained world that has only existed basically from page one. I wanted there to be a sense of depth. And uh, plus, it's really cool! That is an incredible setting. I wanted to ask about the the new weird aspect. I I had never heard of that subgenre before, probably this year. You mentioned some of the authors from that genre. What are some of the characteristics of that that you wanted to produce in your own way in this story? Sure, I I did a lot of thinking about the new weird because Shield and Crocus came out of 
basically I was inspired by a classmate at Clarion West who wrote a cool new weird story and I said, oh, that's, I love that stuff. And then, so I very intentionally went to the new weird and tried to grab kind of traits and tropes that come up frequently. Uh, there is the city is character, kind of a, a, a rich, baroque, complicated, broken, dysfunctional city that has a lot to kind of going for it, going in and of itself, where that has its own story. But then body transformation is a big theme in the New Weird. In Nievel's work, you have the remade who are prisoners who are alchemically remade. So it's capital R-E, capital M-A-D-E. So they have one arm replaced with a gigantic crab claw or so on and so on and so on. It's, it's, in that world, it's very much a punitive, cruel fashion. And in other worlds, you have different types of, of body transformation. But it's not usually good. The, the transformation is disfiguring, disabling, and or just disturbing. So I wanted to figure out a, a different way to get to that body transformation saying, okay, here's a couple of different bones. I want transformation. I want a Baroque setting. I want an aspect of revolution. I want genres mashing together, fantasy, science fiction, pulp, some horror. And then I threw all those bones into a pot and then dumped some elements from superheroes in as well. And then it just became a question of how to make it all fit together so that the flavors actually worked with one another. Who are the characters that we're rooting for and, and what's kind of their struggle coming in? Sure. So the main character in a group of six is First Sentinel, who um, basically his secret identity is Wanlar, because these shields, who are the protectors of the city, who are trying to free it from the tyrants, they can't just walk around being like, oh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm Sapphire. I'm with the shields of Adekal. How you doing there, policeman who works for the people who are trying to kill me? <laughs> so they all need to protect those identities, just like superheroes often do. So First Sentinel is the longest-serving member of the Shields. This, this is a, an organization that's been active for very nearly the entire time that the tyrants have been active. Fifty years ago, uh, Nevri, who is one of the tyrants, is, is suspected to burn the Senate building down with all of the senators that are... The, the ruling group of the city. So with all of them dead, she was the only senator who remained. She asserted control. And then when that regime changes, other tyrants, other people come in and try to kind of set up shop. So that that's the big break. And the main character for Sentinel joins a man who goes by the name of Aegis, with ha who has a magical shield and you know, has knowledge and skills and money so First Sentinel joins him, and then for 50 years, First Sentinel has been fighting with the shields, and after the first Aegis dies, that shield comes back again and finds a new bearer, and now they're on the fifth Aegis, and that, the fifth, is one Lars' son, is First Sentinel's son. Now that's his adopted son, because for most of, for 30-ish of those years, First Sentinel was married to another shield who went by the name of Valence and then became the third Aegis. And when she, die, uh, uh, she dies, Wunlar adopts her son. So there's a lot of kind of complicated character backstory for First Sentinel. The whole journey of the Shields is really his journey. And there's lots of other characters who are important as well. The, my other leads, really, are the fifth Aegis, First Sentinel's son, who has, has never known the city to be anything other than a war zone. 
and never really had a chance to have a childhood. You know, the child, the, the games he played when he was five are spot the tail and like rescue the grocer maid. So he was kind of raised to be a warrior and never really had a choice to be anything else. So he's, he's just, he is the job. He's completely in it. And he has enough of the youthful optimism to be able to keep his father kind of still fighting the good fight because for, for Sentinel, it's 50 years of failure, dozens of friends that he's buried and lost. And he goes in, he gives it his all, and it's never enough. So that this, this attempt to break the summit is really do or die for them. That if, if the tyrants come together, they'll just wipe everybody out and there will be no more hope for freedom for out at call. So it's really first Sentinel and Aegis. And then the third POV character is Sapphire, who's the strongest woman from a race of giants called Freythene, who were originally all slaves being held by one of the tyrants. The shields free all the Freythene. And she says, okay, you free my people. I'll help free the whole city. So she's like eight feet tall, four feet wide. She's like a, a Hulk bruiser type. And it's just flat out the strongest one of the entire team. And I wanted to have my bruiser character be a woman because so frequently, you, you know, you'll have women with super strength, but they're always kind of dainty still. Even She-Hulk is still much more feminine than Hulk. And I wanted to challenge that. But this, the whole story really revolves around those three leads. Where does this story become personal for you? Well, by this time, the novel has been with me for so long that it's, it's just these, main, these characters are, are kind of like old friends to me, that I started writing the story at Clarion West. The instructor said, great, this is a novel, go write that novel. And it's really the novel that taught me how to be a professional writer. I'd done two novels beforehand. I got into this one, I wrote it, I revised it, I revised it some more, I submitted, I got good feedback, I revised some more. And then when I finally put it aside, the next, the very next novel I completed was Geekomancy, and that's what sold. So the book, the novel has really become like an old friend to me. And there's so much of my love of fantasy and of the weird and of superheroes. And it was a very deliberate attempt to combine two things that I loved to try and see if I could make, use them to make one another even more awesome. So it's, it's a passion project in a lot of different ways. And it's just a total dream come true to be able to actually get it out in the world, especially with the incredible production value that 47 North has, has provided in the cover and being able to get out in print. And all of my other books had been ebook and audio beforehand. So it's just a culmination of a lot of different ambitions and passions and uh, years of long hard work. That is an incredible cover. What, what can you tell us about the process for that? Basically, when I finished writing the first draft, this would have been 2008, 2009. I had a sense in my brain of what I wanted the cover to look like. And this is, you know, many, many authors, I imagine, we, we fantasize what we want the cover of our book to be like. And the vision that I had was the six shields standing on the kind of lip of the crevasse of the city because it's the fall of Audek created like a Grand Canyon. So there's the edge of the city and that they would all be looking down onto the skeleton of the Titan. And that image just stuck with me. And that, that plus a couple of other ideas were sent over through to the cover designer. And this was all coordinated by Jason Gurley, um, who was the cover artist for Hugh Howey's Wool and a lot of other fairly high-profile uh, covers. 
So working with Jason, they contracted Stefan Martinieri, and Stefan sent this great black and white sketch. It's going, okay, this is kind of where we're going. And working with Jason and my editor, Dave Pomerico, I gave some notes. They fed those back to Stefan. He took what I was saying and did that plus even more, having different levels of the city, the element that uh, the buildings closer to Aegis in the front would be more dilapidated and run down and ramshackle, and that the buildings toward the, the head of the city, toward the skull, would be richer because that's where the collaborators lived. It's where more of the tyrant's staff lived. So that there's a literalized body politic visually and that you have the juxtaposition of Aegis, the one hero at the bottom looking up and then the imposing skull and then the skyline on top of the skull with the tower of the city mother, the goddess of the city that's being controlled by the tyrants. So it just has everything in one and it's got scale, it's got mood, it conveys heroism and the weird and it's just uh, the whole process of, of getting toward that cover and being able to kind of take Stefan Martinieri's amazing skills and be able to say hey and and what if you did this also and to see him deploy that and bring it to life was just amazing yeah that's that's surely a collector's piece right there and I, I I'm really impressed with Jason Gurley his cover art for Michael Bunker for Hugh um some of the stuff I've looked at him as an option for if I were to indie publish a novel, uh, he's got incredible stuff. Uh, just a quick plug for him. Cause we're actually going to have him on the show. His novel, Eleanor, uh, is coming out in, uh, June 27th. And, uh, that's kind of like, I don't know if it would be considered new weird, but it's sort of compared to, um, is it the ocean at the end of the lane? Okay, yeah. I Neil Gaiman. I so think. a bit, uh, somewhat dreamlike mm-hmm. in the in the feel, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been chatting with Jason kind of outside of uh, 47 North, and I'm definitely looking forward to Eleanor. So what's been kind of the difference for you going from uh, Pocket Books to 47 North? Sure. The, um, the Amazon publishing team has been very, very active and very communicative. Because they, the way that they do things, it... They, they tend to treat their authors like customers because they're competing as a publisher because they know if we want to get the best talent, we have to provide the best publishing experience because in a world where indie publishing is a very strong option for authors, it's incumbent on publishers to make a very good case why authors should want to work with them rather than either other publishers or self-publishing. And I think 47 North has taken that very much to heart. So... They're, they really want to solicit a lot of ideas from me. You know, they, they wanted input from me for every, pretty much every step of the process on cover design, on what we we're going to do with the, the comic version, on, you know, the lettering for the cover, on the map design that they did uh, getting XNR. So it's been, there's been a ton of communication and a great collaboration, which is fun for me because you know, my day job is working in publishing, so I'm used to that collaboration coming from the staffer side of, hey, here's a rough for a cover for a book by, you know, Wesley Chu. What do we all think? And being able to give my input there, turning the tables and still having that level of input, because not every publisher is able to give the same level of input to authors for every part of the process. 47 North tends to give that opportunity in a lot of places in the process, which is very cool. And um, Dave Pomerico, who acquired the book, had actually 
taken the book and brought it all the way to editorial meeting at Spectra when he was at Random House. And the book wasn't quite ready then, so he wasn't able to get it passed. So then a couple of years later, the circle comes all the way back around and he was able to pick it up. So there was a great, uh, a great satisfaction, I think, for both of us in being able to, to come back around with the work and to collaborate on that. So we got everything done before, before David moved on to Harper Voyager, and it was great to make a book together. So what's the status on the comic? Is it a comic graphic novel type thing? Yeah, the plan is to do a original graphic novel with Jet City Comics set in the in the city of Outek Hall. I provided an outline for a possible storyline, and um, Alex Carr and the Jet City Comics team are still, you know, kind of interviewing author, uh, kind of artists and writers to see what the best adaptation team would be. So I'm hoping we'll we'll have some news on that soon. But they're very much committed to finding the exact right people to work on this because. I think if things go well, this is a setting and a story that could kind of expand and there'd be lots of opportunities to tell stories that are in the interstice, dig into the 50 years of history, show this, the world from other people's perspectives, not just the heroes and the villains, but maybe the people on the street, and that I designed a setting that I hope is very generative and has room so that we want to set a very good visual precedent carrying forward from Stefan's cover art. So that if there's a original graphic novel, we want to have a great team in place because then we can maybe do more with them um, in the future. So I'm hoping for news on that, but publishing moves at its own speed, as I know. Yes, of course. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go back to uh, Dave's second question. He says, the Re-Reyes Mansi tales are largely urban fantasy, while Shield and Crocus resonate strongly to the epic fantasy vibe. What were the differences and similarities in how you chose to express the heroism and valor of your protags in each story? Sure, yeah, that's a good question. I think the, the tonal assumptions of epic fantasy and of urban fantasy are frequently very different. That in urban fantasy, your main character is, is usually just kind of a, an ordinary person thrust into a magical world. Or they are somebody who has an extraordinary ability, but they are still ultimately a human, and that they're expected to operate at kind of a street level, that most urban fantasy is, you know, save this person from being killed by a magic spell or attacked by a werewolf. Whereas epic fantasy, the stakes tend to be much larger. So Ree's main objectives are save these few people from being destroyed by magic or monsters or terrible things. And the shield's objective in Shield and Crocus is save the city. You know, you have to overthrow entire armies of villains and their their vassals so that the fight scenes in Shield and Crocus are almost always on a larger scale. It's a group against an even larger group, or it's a group against an incredibly powerful opponent. With the Rhea Reyes books, it's more often Rhea or Rhea and Drake against a number of opponents so that the, the scale is a big element. And then there's also, for the, the Geekomancy books with Rhea Reyes, it's really about tone and about fun and comic action. You know, Rhea is much more likely to to make to crack a joke while she's fighting, and it's about love of pop culture as a way of kind of dealing with problems in life and kind of a literalization of here are monsters, and you go to your fandom and to your passions to deal with these monsters. So the metaphorical matri- uh, kind of framing is very different in urban fantasy for the Re-Reyes books. 
um, the the inclination is very different for for shield and crocus it's kind of the high heroism of superhero fantasy like avengers justice league married to the baroque oddity of the weird so that for me they live in very different parts of my brain and what they really have in common is a sense of action adventure kind of pacing and timing and that that's probably the the thing that's most consistent between all of my writing is my background in martial arts and in dance gives me a, a pretty solid i think visual and kinesthetic sense but otherwise they're very different works um, in my in my brain i think i went away from the shield and crocus tone to geekomancy which is part of why they're so different because i had spent a lot of time in one mindset and i wanted to go to something that was contemporary that was really fun that was about kind of more one character and a small set of stakes and a person trying to live in a normal world versus heroes trying to th- overthrow a government. So the timing of the writing was Geekomancy was written before Shield and Crocus? So Geekomancy was actually written after Shield and Crocus. But okay. the, the version of Shield and Crocus that is out, if you take away all the editorial um, work from 47 North, the version of Shield and Crocus that sold came after I wrote Geekomancy. That I did, I went back and did major revisions on Shield and Crocus before it sold. So I, you know, I wrote okay. Shield and Crocus, mm-hmm. I wrote Geekomancy, Geekomancy sold, I wrote Celebromancy, Celebromancy went off to for edits, and then I went back and did a major revision on Shield and Crocus. How did writing Shield and Crocus the last time? How did it make you grow as a writer? I think a lot of it was was about clarity and about making the motivation very present on the page, and that. The first couple of times through through Shield and Crocus, it was like, and here's some really cool stuff. I just I had so many things that I wanted to do that I threw it all on the page, and there wasn't as much structure to it, nor did I have as much of a through line of this is where First Sentinel starts the book, and here's where he ends it, and this is how the plot, this is how he interacts with the plot so that he becomes the person he needs to be at the end of the book. I didn't have as clear of that trajectory until much later on. That I, you know, I cut things, I dropped flashbacks, I moved other stuff around, I moved focus between a couple of characters, I clarified motivation of things that were already written. It's like, why did these, you know, this character do the thing? Because on the day I just wrote, uh, do the thing. So going back and and base and almost kind of hacking my own brain and digging into why I wrote things through the first time or the second time or the third, because this is, you know, many revisions later, and making it all make sense as a complete work. And then the the editorial team from 47 North took that even farther. So the, the biggest difference in edits was really kind of a, a, a scaffolding to bear up the middle because there's a lot of there's set piece to betrayal to reversal to set piece in the middle that creates all the momentum that we then take into the, the last act. And the editorial work really bore up the middle so that it didn't sag. And I think it strengthened the character arcs and made it so that the reader was never confused and that the characters were clear in how they moved through the story so that there was a sense of, of momentum toward the big uh, kind of three-part finale. Do you have any note-taking processes for tracking a character's arc? You know, I don't do it once the book is written, but I have taken to doing more and more outlining before I write a book or before I am doing a new revision, trying to say, okay, this is where a character starts, 
This is where I want them to end. What kind of has to change in them? And it's frequently about what challenges will they encounter that are, it will make them kind of reconsider their view of the world or will push them to grow and change to become the character they need to be in order to see, succeed in the end. So I don't have as like I don't have a, a an awesome color code of like okay this character is at uh, two out of ten on the blue scale and I need to get to I need to get uh, you know I need to get this this lead to eight on the blue scale so that she can succeed at the blue task. I'm gonna try and do more outlining and a little bit more of that that structural view in future works, but thus far it's usually more about having it in my head writing out the plot the the outline of the plot and keeping the character very very much present and for in the forefront of my mind as I'm doing that outline so it's not just moving a character as a chess piece through the story that at each stage this makes sense for what the character would want to do next you know what what's the smartest thing they could do in this situation and then have it fail this was a lesson I took from from Mary Robinette uh, Kowal in a class I took with her so it's a little bit more kind of reading and rereading and not as much having a, an amazeballs kind of flow chart on my wall. Though I would like to have that. I do have a, a, a big whiteboard in my office now, so I, sh- I could do something with that. <laughs> well, that's encouraging. I'm more of a keep it all in my head kind of guy based on mm-hmm. – I, I know what I did at the beginning. The novel I'm writing right now, I did a bunch of notes in like September. Now it's June, and I, I'm just kind of – I'm going with it. I'm editing through the second draft and it's getting pretty close. And I'm like, should I go back and, you know, kind kind of chart how each chapter helps the characters get through their arc? And yeah. I, I don't know if it's laziness or if I just uh, want to trust my intuition. Uh, I'm not sure. But, you know, sometimes that's just how it works. We just do what we want to do and it works. Yeah, I think... My process is definitely always changing, and I know a lot of other writers who who say that their process continues to change, that you can only ever learn how to write the book you're writing. So, you know, if it works for you in this project, that's great. I'm trying to, to still experiment. If there are places where you want to experiment, I think that can be be fantastic. And, you know, taking whatever whatever was most difficult in the book that you just wrote, seeing, is there a way that I can make that easier on myself for the next book? Uh, that could be a, a pretty a pretty solid way of trying to figure out how to organically improve one's process. That's that's good advice. I like that. Today's sponsor is the Kickstarter project to bring the successful Kindle-only Whispers from the Abyss anthology to print. A collection of Lovecraft-inspired short stories, the anthology features 33 spine-chilling tales, including works by Greg Stalzi, Nick Mamatas, Tim Pratt, Dennis Detwiller, Greg Van Eekout, and Sylvia Moreno-Garcia. The Kickstarter will conclude on July 31st. Incentives include custom sketches by Call of Cthulhu artist Patrick McAvoy, poster art, limited book plates, and an opportunity to become a member of the Esoteric Order of Dagon. For more information, go to whispersfromtheabyss.com. So the last time you were on the show was about a year ago, and I remember one of the things you were talking about was I believe 2012 was just like an amazing year for you. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, now I'm getting kind of confused in my years. So 2012 was the year that you first started getting published. Is that right? Yeah. I think I was on last year um, co-interviewing or uh, co yeah. Being a co-interviewer with you talking to Jason Huff. 
we also did some that were specifically on geekomancy. So you were you were trying to talk about being more professional and uh, just kind of growing in this profession. How's that working for you this year, and and what are you trying to improve? Yeah, so this year I knew I would need to be really disciplined because I've already had a novella come out, I've had a novel, and then there's one more novel to come, um, Younger Gods, which is going to be sometime in fourth quarter, depending on how revisions go. So there are going to be a lot of demands on my time. I knew there was going to be a lot of travel between work, going around to conventions at Anchor Robot, and just going to conventions myself because I had a lot of work to promote. So one of the things that I did last fall is why I took the, the writing on the fast track class uh, with Mary Robinette because I wanted to, to see if I could push my process and get better at outlining and get faster at drafting and be able to divide, like make the best use of a limited amount of time. Because when I traveled as a book rep, this was 2009 to 2012, I'd have little chunks of time, but I wasn't as good yet at getting a lot out of those chunks of time. So I wanted to get to the point where I could produce a good amount just writing during lunch and then in one maybe 60 to 90 minute session after work so that it wasn't just, well, I'm a writer, so I'm just kind of always writing. You know, I work eight hours a day and then I, I kind of write just all of the rest of the time because that wouldn't work. I have to do promotion. I need to have a, a life and you know, I need to spend time with my fiance. I need to take some content in not instead of just always kind of giving the content out. So part of the biggest professional development in the last year for 14 has just been, all right, you're doing the job, so do the job. Be able to write and then revise or jump, being able to, to jump from tasks and be efficient, be smart about how I was going to set up my process, continue to hack my process to, to be better at what it is that I want to do. You know, I've started a mailing list this year and I've been really active at digging into more professional nonfiction works about publishing uh, following self-publishing podcasts and other works because I want to have a nice diverse publishing portfolio and just being like, okay, if I want to do this for the next 40 years of my life, I need to not just have short-term agendas. I need to be thinking about skill acquisition that will benefit me for years and decades to come and to be aware of not only the short game, the middle term, but the long term at publishing. What's some of the long-term things that you've focused on? So long term, I think uh, it's been accepting that my process will always keep changing and that there's no one process that I'm building toward. And once I reach it, I will be perfect and that every book will come <laughs> out like clockwork. Uh, it's accepting that that being a student of writing is something I will I will be for the rest of my life. And that if I stop, it's probably probably means I've gotten lazy and that's no good that I want to always be setting myself new tasks, but also kind of long-term thinking as a businessman, that if these books are going to be part of my retirement, I want to write not only the books that I'm super excited about, but books that will give me a good portfolio across a variety, you know, across a long time. So if I write only ever urban fantasy, then when urban fantasy is doing great, I'll make more money. And when it's not, I'll have maybe a harder time selling books. But if I build a reputation as being a versatile writer, not only in genre, but in format or in kind of distribution method, traditional publishing, self-publishing, then I'll always be on my toes and I can react to whatever happens. 
and that as the as the kind of the tides and seas of publishing change, I'll always have something to hold on to, and that that's kind of a a future proofing agenda in my career. So I'm trying to I'm very actively pursuing types of publication deals and types of arrangements that will kind of create that ground floor of a diverse portfolio, because that's kind of my my medium term agenda that then a longer term agenda is built on. So do you have any self-publishing plans in the near future? So actually, just a couple days ago, an idea um, kind of walked walked up to the, the green room of my brain. So I have this this construct that there's a, <laughs> a room in my brain where all of the story ideas live, waiting to be written. And they're just kind of hanging out like people waiting for the doctor or like actors waiting to go in for a casting call for an audition. And this idea just came up to the door was like, hey, hey, I know you're not, I know you're in there and you're not busy. Hey, hey, <laughs> like, listen to me. Um, so I let it in to just kind of ha- say its piece so I could get some notes down. And the way that it's seeming in my brain, it seems like it would be, it could be a really good fit for self-publishing, but it's still too early for me to want to talk about it um, kind of even in the semi, in the semi-private of a podcast where, you know, Thousands of people may hear it, um, but not tens of thousands, perhaps. I'm not totally sure about your, your listenership. I say thousands. But it's still a newish idea. But if it, if it behaves the way I think it might, it could be a really good choice for self-publishing. And I'm excited to develop those skills because I love shop talk in, public, in the kind of business of publishing, but I'm not as well informed about self-publishing as I would like to be. The best way to learn about something is to do it and then to be able to talk about it. So right now, kind of traditional publishing deals get priority because they're already contracted and, you know, have obligations. But I'd love to fit a self-published work in sometime in the, you know, medium, medium uh, to near term as it, you know, as it can fit into the rest of what I'm doing. Is there a reason why this project would be specifically more suited for self-publishing? Um, I think it's likely to be suited because it's a genre that I see working fairly well in self-publishing. And it's got an interesting format aspect that I think could be really handy and versatile in a self-publishing landscape in terms of here are the things that you can do if you're an indie author that you can't so much, you, you don't have as much direct control over if you're traditionally published because you're not the person pulling the levers so that it's a work that when I said, oh, this has potential, I kind of nudged it in that direction so that as it develops, it will be in a good position to make use of the kind of situational advantages that I and strategic advantages that I see self-publishers having, but that landscape is changing quickly. So if I have to wait two years to get to this project, the seas may have changed by then, and I'll maybe have to rearrange something. But as is, I see it as a good genre and format match for what's going on in self-publishing and what can be done in that uh, in that approach. <laughs> okay, I, I won't press any farther on on that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the the idea it's the idea is too much of a baby right now. Okay, no, that's cool. We'll we'll talk about it when it's uh, further along. Yeah, sure, that'd be great. So, um, big news dropped today about Angry Robot. Would you like to share that with our audience? They've probably heard by now, but sure. So, um, Lee Harris, our senior editor at Angry Robot has accepted a great position at uh, Tor.com's new imprint, working on novellas and short novels and some other kind of experimental stuff. Um, And it's a great opportunity for Lee because at Angry Robot, he's senior editor, but the way that 
our structure works, there's not really a place for him to go up from there without kind of doing Mark Gascoigne's job, Mark, our managing director. So Lee has has been, you know, working with Angry Robot for five years, and this was a good opportunity for him. And so we're very happy uh, for him in his new position. I may try to send him something at uh, at the Tor.com imprint once he's left Robot and there's no, uh, you know, conflict of interest or anything. He's got a great editorial eye, and I think... Uh, he'll be in a good position to do some very cool experimental things and take some of those lessons from IndiePub that I've been observing and trying to learn and have he and his team deploy those with the power of a traditional publishing team and maybe try to be a hap- like a really cool, versatile little engine within a gigantic publishing machine that has free reign to go out and do amazing things and take risks, but has the backing of a large structure. And that could be really cool. So I'm not sure how much people have heard about the Tor.com imprint. Uh, I wonder if you can kind of summarize that and you know, kind of what you think, how this will help our speculative fiction industry. Sure. So decades and decades ago, novellas and short novels like 30,000 to 50,000, 60,000, that was the length of science fiction. You know, you go back and you look at golden age science fiction, you look at stuff in the new wave you look at like Alfred Bester, a lot of these are shorter works compared to the 80,000, 100,000 word novels that are now kind of uh, de rigueur and standard in science fiction fantasy. So what the Tor.com imprint is doing is going, hey, indie publisher, well, I don't know if, what, if this is their, their reasoning because I'm not in that team, so I don't know exactly. But the way I see it is it's Macmillan, a big five publisher going, this is a market that we're, that that uh, traditional publishers are not in, that indie publishers are dominating just by being the only ones in the territory, and there's a margin to be made there. We're noticing that our novellas from Tor.com are selling pretty well. We're noticing that this price point to this length in indie pub is working really well for a lot of authors. So what if we take our award, many award-nominated works and approach from Tor.com, the, the online magazine, and we expand into that territory, into that 17,500 word through 40,000 word. So that's in the novella range, according to the science fiction and fantasy writers of America. It's kind of, that's why that, that's the cutoff. And then short novels, and that will be up to them to determine. So I think it's the Macmillan team and Tor and Tor.com specifically going, we can do something here. We're going to take, we're going to keep experimenting the way that Tor does and the way Tor.com has and Irene Gallo, as the associate publisher, has been, you know, nose deep in Tor.com. And Macmillan has been fairly forward thinking in a lot of strategies, DRM free, trying serials, that this is a way of extending that and to make a really strong move into that part of the field. You know, whenever I pick up a new book on my Kindle and I see the location is between 2,000 and 3,000, that that just makes it so much easier to read. Yeah, right. <laughs> I can finish it in a day or two, and I just feel more accomplished for that month. Yeah, and I think it's going to be a great opportunity for writers to be able to place works that are usually have been, that have previously been really hard to sell. If you have a novella and you're not a big name, you've got maybe two or three markets in short, the short fiction world where you can try and place it. Otherwise, you're going to indie pub it, or you're going to try and find one of these, the publishers, maybe a smaller publisher, that will take an oddly shaped work. Like, you know, well, it's 45,000 words, and it needs to be 45,000 words. Most publishers will go, sorry, this is a way for writers to have a, a market for that. And if it works, I imagine we'll see other 
big five houses and other publishers, independent and other sizes, go, okay, we want to be able to compete in that area as well. And then writers will continue to benefit because if there's a way to to take a 30,000 word work that is professional quality and if it were a different size would be good for a traditional publisher and to get all that partnership of art design, strong editorial work that's all paid by the publisher and then be able to, to get it out and have a marketing and publicity team support it, especially since what I'm hearing is that the imprint is going to offer two payment st- styles. You can either take a traditional advance and normal ebook royalties, or you can take something that's a lower advance with higher ebook royalties. I'm not totally uh, clear on all of those details. I'm not sure if they're totally settled yet. I'm not sure if like, there's contracts written out. I haven't seen them for sure. But that's another place of versatility where if you're a writer and like, well, maybe I don't want an advance here. Maybe I want double the ebook royalty because that closes the gap between an ebook royalty for traditional published works where it's usually 25% of publisher net and what you get as the to the publisher's share as an indie published author uh, with some markets, you know, 70% or maybe 50%. If you're getting 50 net and the publisher is fronting all the costs, that can be a really good deal. So it can be good for the publisher and good for us as writers. So I said that, uh, you know, we were going to talk for 20 minutes. Uh, we've gone over that. <laughs> so uh, I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun chatting with you. I'm curious what your thoughts are. You know, maybe it's a little bit too strange because you were publishing with 47 North. But just the latest stuff between Hachette and Amazon, kind of what's the most important info that you take from this dispute? Sure. So it's a little hard for me to speak with total authority on the situation because I'm not privy to the negotiations. There's a ton of speculation about what these negotiations are about. And the topics I I hear come up most often are uh, Hachette wanting to go back to agency pricing on ebook, which would mean that they would keep 70% of each sale done through Amazon. And Amazon saying, no, 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 we want wholesale pricing uh, and kind of licensing structure where the publisher keeps 50 and the retailer keeps 50. And that's a big difference for either side. So that's one possibility. I've also heard that maybe Amazon wants a bigger percentage or Amazon wants a big, or or like that either side wants to change the retail terms so that when Amazon buys a copy of an Orbit book to then sell to a a consumer, maybe they get 50% as is and they're asking for 55 or that, Hachette is saying, no, 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 you get 45. I don't think those are actually the numbers, but that's one of the possibilities. Uh, And then there's any number of other possibilities, like one side or another wants to change the percentage that one team or the other gets in co-op for digital marketing of eBooks, which is a thing where Amazon does certain services for publishers that pay co-op for eBooks. So there's a lot of ways that this could be, like there's tons of uh, things that they could be fighting over. But what authors and readers need to know is that because there's a small number of really powerful players in the publishing industry, the big five, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, that when they fight, if they're not, if they don't fight in a way where they're also then really, really powerfully and actively taking care of their authors, authors are going to be the people who lose. That when there's a lack of, when there's a loss of service, when pre-order buttons go away, when a retailer decides to stop carrying an entire publisher's catalog, like Simon & Schuster at Barnes & Noble, or 
when Amazon publishing books are just flat out rejected from Barnes and Noble as a matter of course, that when these giants fight, authors tend to lose and it tends to be not competitive. It tends to not drive prices down for or, or create better service for the consumer. It's giant publishing companies and giant business entities doing the best for themselves. And that's what businesses are about. They're about creating the most value for themselves and for the people who are involved in it. So like that's there's nothing more wrong with that than there's wrong with capitalism. But as consumers, I think it behooves us to know what's going on as much as we can. And just as writers, we want to have a diverse publishing portfolio. I think as consumers, we want to be smart about where we're sending our money and that if you have your entire kind of consumer life wrapped up in one marketplace, if that marketplace starts messing with you, you're really vulnerable. So that for consumers, when stuff like this goes on, think about where's your money going? Who is it supporting? How vulnerable are you to disruptions like this? That if you're, you know, if you shop at Amazon all the time, but you have a, a dear friend who is a Hachette author and you don't want to like be on Twitter being like, oh, I love Amazon. It saved me so much money because you've got a personal relationship there. Being too locked into any one way of doing anything can be dangerous. So that would be my my overview without having intimate knowledge of the actual details of, of what they're fighting over. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess the next comment that I think of after that is how we can be more diverse as consumers. Um, mm-hmm. And one thing I'm thinking of immediately is uh, Patreon, um, right. and, which is I haven't I've I saw something that uh, is it Neil Clark with Clark's World. Yeah, he, I think he's he's still running Patreon. So what is what's kind of the benefit for consumers and what's the benefit for for authors when it comes to that service? So Patreon is an interesting way of trying to bring back the old patronage model for creatives where Neil Clark, who's the the publisher and editor of Clark's World magazine, has gone on Patreon and said, if you fund me as a patron, this will help me make Clark's World magazine better, more stories, more frequently, better art, better pay for my for my authors. And as a patron, depending on how much you pledge, you get certain benefits. And what it allows is a direct relationship between creator and consumer. So it's a di- another form of disintermediation of cutting out middlemen. As a middle person myself, I would not be excited to cut out all middle people, but having a direct <laughs> relationship as a creator to a consumer as a creator is very appealing to me. Because if I have a you know a thousand people on my mailing list, and if nobody wants to buy my book and I don't want to in you know, and I'm going to indie pub it, and I can go to my, that thousand people and say, hey, I'm going to let you get this book first at this nice low price, and then you instantly have a thousand sales who are a thousand voices who are then going to go and spread the word for your work, and you can cultivate those relationships through Patreon, through Kickstarter, and through other models. So it's a there's a lot of potential in Patreon and models like it, I think, in letting creators create the uh, letting creators develop and forge those one-to-one relationships with the people who interact directly with their art. And that could be very cool. Very nice. Well, I'm hearing uh, my baby crying, so I better go help out my wife. It's been great to talk with you, Michael. We wish you the best with Shield and Crocus. And uh, when does Younger Gods come out? 
Um, we're looking at quarter four, 2014. The exact publishing date has uh, is TBD because uh, okay. I've got a little bit of editing to do. But they are they're they're hoping to get it out earlier rather than later, which uh, which I always like. Cool. What we'll do for the giveaway is we'll just have people go to the post for this and comment. Do you want to summarize again what what the entry will be? Yeah, for this, take a character from a fantasy world that you love and mythologize them into a superhero. So take their their persona as written and take it one step further and turn them into a superhero. That can be with a secret entity. It can be talking about what their costume would be. It could be extending their power into a superpower. So just take a character from fantasy that you love and whip them up into a superhero. Awesome. And the prize will be an audio CD, a paperback, and an ebook. Is that correct? Yeah. And I'll, I'll sign and personalize the paperback. Okay. So I'm going to comment and then I'm going to shut down comments after that. <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. And uh, we'll give our audience a week to comment and enter for that. Thanks a lot, Michael. Uh, where can people find you online? So I'm at michaelrunderwood.com. It's my website. And far more often than that, I am on Twitter at Mike R. Underwood. Okay, great. We wish you the best, Michael. Thanks so much for having me on. Take care, Tim. There you go, folks. Hope you enjoyed this episode with Michael Underwood. I'll put some links in the show notes about this uh, Amazon and versus Hachette controversy. Some information has come out since we recorded, so I want to give you the most up-to-date news. Thanks again to our sponsor, the Whispers from the Abyss Anthology, now on kickstarter.com through July 31st.